0: Hello, and welcome to this podcast from Ideas for Leaders. I am Roddy Miller, and I'm very excited to have with us today today Hubert Jolie. Hubert is a promoter of the purposeful human organisation, which fits very closely with our red thread here at Ideas for Leaders of making organisations more human. But that's not the only reason I'm delighted to be speaking with Hubert today, for he not only is a great thought leader, but has also put the thinking into practice with stunning effect. After a long and successful career, which he admits he started with a much more traditional view of leadership that took him through McKinsey as a consultant and increasingly senior roles at Vivendi and leadership ones at Carlson uh, Wagon Lee, He took on the CEO role of Best Buy, the large US electronics chain store in 2012. For most people, this was a poison chalice a chalice with failing performance and huge competitive pressures. But Hubert, through applying his people first principles, successfully turned it around and with great effect. He retired as executive chairman last year and now is, the facu- is part of faculty at Harvard. Uh, his book, The Heart of Business, uh, that, which is part case study and part leadership manual, is published in May this year. And it seems like a, a great p- place for us to start our conversation. So, Joubert, welcome to the show. Uh, Roddy, thank you for having me. I look forward to our conversation. Um, so I, I've been reading avidly the book, um, and it's packed full of both anecdote and um, and sort of great thinking as well and and it, it, it's a, it's a great story and a great read but uh, I think what comes through very clearly from it is is this passion you have to to promote uh, and speak about the the, the way of leading um, and how that uh, and how your thinking around that has changed since you, you started out uh, your career um, so I mean do, do you want to just sort of talk us very quickly through that journey from the, the sort of McKinsey technical consultant through to the the, the, the broader style of leadership you, you've adopted and, and championed today.
1: Yeah, Roddy, it's been a journey for me. Um, I studied, like many, uh, believing that uh, being smart was the most important thing. So I had classical training, went to business school. McKinsey is a great you know problem-solving school. Um, and I now know that uh, my role as a leader is not to be the smartest person in the room, it's not to tell everybody how smart I am, but it's much more to create an environment in which others can, can blossom. And for me, there's been several milestones in that journey. Uh, maybe, you know, if I go, because this has been going way back, so to maybe the early 90s, when one of my clients at McKinsey, Jean-Marie Descarpentries, who was in the French office at the time, told me the purpose of a company is not to make money. The company has three imperatives of course there's a financial imperative you need to make money otherwise you die but it really starts with excellence on the people imperative having great teams well equipped well motivated then it leads to excellence on the business imperative having customers happy customers who want more and excellence on people and business is what leads to excellence on on financial imperative but you shouldn't be confused between the goal and an imperative the Other milestone pretty much at the same time, Roddy, was a conversation with two of my friends who are monks and asked me to write with them articles about the philosophy and theology of work. Why do we work? Is work a curse because some dude sinned in paradise? Is it something we do so that we can do something else that's more fun? Or is work really part of our uh, you know, search for meaning as human beings. Is it our, part of our calling to do something good in the world? And of course, I know uh, I know what it is. So this point about, you know, our individual search for meaning and how it can connect with the purpose of a company, I think is something that, uh, you know, became magical at, at, uh, at Best Buy and was part of my uh, transformation in the, you know, mid-2000s, I was working with other CEOs. How can we apply this humanistic principles to the way we lead? I also did the, because it has to do with spirituality as well. I did the exercises, the spiritual exercises of Ignatius of Loyola. (laughs) But all of this remains either in my head or in my soul, but uh, there's a big difference between thinking about this and doing it, right? And part of the challenge for all of us is, inside ourselves, right? During this lockdown, if you cannot go outside, go inside. (laughs) And for me, I got some wonderful help from a coach. I highly recommend to any, it's interesting, uh, Roddy, 100% of the top 100 100 tennis players in the world have a coach. 100% of the uh, UK uh, soccer teams uh, have a coach. What about us as executives? It helped me tremendously to evolve and I started to work with Marshall Goldsmith in 2009, who's written this great book, what got you here, won't get you there. And in the 20 quirks of (laughs) successful people that Marshall lists in in his book, I had 13 of them. (laughs) So I really had to work on myself. And it's really during my time at Best Buy that I fundamentally understood the power of human magic. And letting go, and really focusing on creating this uh, this environment where others can be successful. I know we'll get into the details, but <laughs> that that was my transformation.
0: But but, but, but it is this awareness, or, or, or um, you're you're sort of digging into this concept of human magic. Um, which is the energy and the passion that, that drives everybody you know, and, and the, ability, yeah. you know, the ability for humans to do such extraordinary things. Um, why do you think that was not clear to you at the outset of your career, but also not clear to so many people? Why do we ignore it?
1: Um, I think we have to rewind and go back to last century um, because uh, I, I think that if you step back today, it's very clear that the world as we know it is not working, right? We have this multifaceted crisis, health crisis, economic crisis, societal, geopolitical, you know, systemic racism, certainly in the US and in many places around the world. So what we have today is not working. I believe it goes back to two seminal ideas and two uh, thinkers in the 20th century. Milton Friedman, who told us that the only thing we have to worry about as business leaders was profit, And Bob McNamara, who came up with this idea that the way, I think he exemplifies it, he was not the only one, but the the way to get things done in companies, take a a bunch of smart people, create a smart plan, an implementation plan, communicate it, track implementation, put incentives in place, and hope that something good happens. Eh. None of this is working, but we're still influenced by this. And so we really have all of us to rewire um, ourselves. And what's interesting, Roddy, is that today I would say, I don't know what you're hearing and feeling, but most of the business leaders I know uh, today, and I know quite a few, believe that leading from a place of purpose and with humanity is the right way to go. But there's a big difference between knowing that's the right way and in being able to do it, and the reason why I wrote this book, "The Heart of Business: Leadership Principles for the Next Era of Capitalism," is as a guide for leaders who are eager to abandon the old ways and move in that uh, in that direction. And part of the way we learn is because it is by doing, right? And during the time at Best Buy, you know, it was not a linear journey. We had some challenges, and we had to overcome them. And be happy to talk about it. But uh, to me, root cause is t- these two guys, you know.
0: But I I mean, so I mean, leadership I always define as you know being able to create the conditions for other people to do their their best work, Um, and and so you need that set of uh, of of leading principles at the top of the organization. But but the change seems to me to always be the bottleneck or, or, or the bottleneck for the change. Is in the middle. It's the it's the poor people, the middle managers who are given instructions from on top, but then have to apply them with, with sort of some resistance uh, to the practicalities of that happening below. Um, well, I'm I, and, happy. And I
1: think, I'm happy to talk about this because the maybe can I walk you through our journey at Best Buy? In yeah. the difficulties, because I think it's good to talk about what's difficult. Uh, and I'll skip. The first phase, which was the turnaround, uh, we can come back to this, but uh, you know, we saved the company and we uh, uh, set ourselves up to ask the question of where do we go from there? How do we accelerate our growth? What kind of company do we want to become when we grow up? And we did some work on the purpose of the company. We decided that uh, we were not a consumer electronics retailer. We were a company that was there to enrich lives through technology by addressing key human needs, and that followed a ton of market research. And so we were clear about what segments, you know, market segments we wanted to uh, serve, what our positioning was going to be to help, you know, customers. But then, when we asked the question of why, this question of purpose, it was a first game changer. And a critical uh, moment around that was when. Uh, one uh, uh, during one of our executive team offsites, when I would gather the executive team and we would work on our strategy, our planning, and so forth, over dinner, I'd ask everybody to come with a picture of themselves when they're when they were little, maybe three or four years old, and uh, we wanted to share our life journey during that dinner, and our purpose in life as individuals. And Roddy, this was a game changer because it got it got to know, to help us to know each other at a mo- much more at a much deeper level. Yeah. Yeah. And realized that what we were there to do was to create good in the world. And so then it became a matter of how do we use our platform at Best Buy to do good in the world. Now many companies articulate a noble purpose, and that's a good thing. But if you stay there, nothing happens. So the next step was make the purpose the cornerstone of the strategy. You have to come up with very specific, very concrete translation of their purpose into a strategy. So at Best Buy for us, for example, it was getting into the health space, helping aging seniors, um, you know, stay in their home longer independently by place, placing, you know, sensors in, under their bed, under their sofa, in the bathroom, the kitchen, uh, fall detection and with remote monitoring, you can detect, you know, a problem and then do an intervention. You would not go into that space Uh, if uh, if you were a retailer because that's actually sold to insurance companies. But that's an illustration of the power of purpose. Now, a challenge in getting there, Roddy, was I was expecting (laughs) naively that the people running the company on a day-to-day basis, and Best Buy, you know, it's close to a $50 billion business, more than 100,000 people. It's a big, you know, it's it's, it's an all-consuming job to run the company. I was expecting them to run the company and at the same time reinvent the company. That doesn't work. So we make some progress when we set up on the side, a strategic growth office that enabled us to develop the kind of initiative I talked about. But then once we had done that, we were still not done because this idea of purpose really works when everybody at the company can write themselves into that story. And imagine ready for a second that I walk, you and I walk into a Best Buy store and we tell the associates, we have big news. The purpose now is going to be to enrich lives with technology by addressing key human needs. Yeah. You know, people are going to say, you're saying what? What do you want <laughs> me to do at 10 o'clock when I take my shift? So uh, the, the you know, you talk about a challenge of middle management. I think it's, it, the way I phrase it is that you need to, as leaders, you need to get to the point where you can make things palatable uh, for the frontliners. So the way we did it was instead of doing PowerPoints and videos and so forth, we closed the stores one day and we did a training. And the training was about uh, in small groups. And of course I was in one of these trainings, uh, share with each other your life story. So I was paired with a young woman. She had been in an abusive relationship with an ex-boyfriend. She had been homeless and Best Buy for her was her home. All of a sudden, Roddy, I see her as a human being, not as an employee. And then second exercise was uh, share with each other, you know, the story of an inspiring friend in your life. Hopefully everybody has one. For me, it's my older brother, Philip. He's a wonderful guy. And describe what he does or what she does for you. Okay, very simple. What we're trying to do with each other and our customers is to treat each other as human beings and see each other as human beings and be an inspiring friend for each other. And so that changes everything. And the result of that is a story. Uh, So when I took over Best Buy, you know, the the, the quality of service had gone down. We were supposed to die and things were not good. Walking into a Best Buy store was not a great experience at the time. (laughs) Not terrible, but not great. Now, fast forward to 2018 or 2019, there's a woman who walks into one of our stores with her young child, maybe three or four years old. And for the holidays, he had had a dinosaur toy as a gift. The dinosaur toy, unfortunately, you know, the head got dismantled, you know, the dinosaur is sick. They go to the store. Now, in any normal store, they would have you know, pointed to the toy aisle. And with some luck, maybe there was still a dinosaur toy, toy that they could buy. This is not what happened in that store on that day. Two associates saw what was going on. They took the sick dinosaur. They went behind a counter and began performing a surgical procedure on the dinosaur, walking the child through the steps they were taking. Of course, substituted, uh, you know, uh, got a new dinosaur. And but gave the child a cure dinosaur. Now imagine, the joy of the boy and his mother. And now here's the question. Do you think, Roddy, that there was a standard operating procedure at Best Buy (laughs) on how to deal with these situations? Or maybe a memo from me (laughs) on how to do it? Of course not. These two associates found it in their hearts because they saw the human beings, and they felt they had the freedom to do this magic for for the customers. And so everything we had to do was, as you, in your words, was to create this environment where, at scale, you know, the associates would feel that this was what they were here to do. You know, we were with, giving them
0: permission to behave like this. Basically,
1: we were a permission, and we were creating an environment where they could um, connect their individual purpose with the purpose of the company. We created an environment where. They felt that they could be human beings and that they had the autonomy uh, to uh, to do this, and and that
0: is magical. <laughs> I tell you, I, I mean that story is magical in, in itself. But um, and and it was presumably magical for the child too that this uh, dinosaur came, came back to, to life in, in in one happy, healthy part. But um, I mean, what are the biggest barriers that you encountered in trying to? enable that, so that the process first, to, to
1: the, the first barrier was the one of capacity. So that's why we created the switchy Growth Office. Sometimes there can be leadership barriers. So the most important decision we make as leaders is who we put in position of power. That is the single most important decision. And they also have learned and changed. In the old days, I would put a lot of emphasis on expertise and experience. So at the top of the house, I would look for the best e-commerce or supply chain or marketing person. And expertise and experience is good and, 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 and helpful, but over time, when I was recruiting or promoting, spending much more time on the person and the leader. So here's another story. When I was, that really struck me, when I was being recruited to become the CEO of counseling companies, uh, the parent committee of Carlson-Vagony Travel and Radisson and TGI Fridays, Madeline Kelson nelson the daughter of the founder, during the interview, asked me a question. She said, Hubert, tell me about your soul. Who asked this question? Because right? aren't leaders supposed to, be, supposed to be mainly a brain? No. Today we need to lead with all of our body parts, our head, our heart, our soul, our guts, our ears and eyes and so forth. And this question of who are we as a leader? How do we want to be remembered? What drives you? And I told the officers at Best Buy, look, uh, if you're here to serve yourself or your boss or me as the CEO of the company, I said, it's okay, it's okay. I don't have a problem with that, except you cannot work here. You can be promoted to being a Best Buy customer, which is a very, we'll take care of you, you know, (laughs) but you just can't work here Uh, and so, Looking for, and it starts It starts with us, right? Change starts with us. What drives me? Why am I here? What good do I want to make in the world? And making sure that you populate. And, and oftentimes you do have to do it top down, right? With the right type of, uh, of leaders. And then you, you translate it. So, uh, you know, every year we get our store general managers together ahead of holiday. It's the most important season for us, right? Half of the annual profit are there. So you would think that we spend all of our time on, on the plan, how to execute the plan. And, and of course, we do have a great plan. <laughs> but for a number of years, we started the meeting with human stories. We ask every one of the leaders to describe and share what drives them. Right? And so put the humanity of the place and tell them don't worry about the size of the organization, make it your own. Uh, and so as a translation of this, there was a store general manager in Boston. He would ask every one of the associates in his store, hundred of them, "What is your dream? Tell me about your dream at Best Buy or outside of Best Buy." Okay, yeah. write it down in the break room. Now your job, or excuse me, my job is to help you achieve your dream. And so you build that kind of commitment. And so it's that tr- leadership transformation that's the biggest leverage point. I, I, I choose to talk about it in terms of opportunity rather than obstacle, but if you don't
0: deal with it, then it's a big challenge because nothing sure. happens. You, you can talk, 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 but, but nothing happens. But there must've been resistance. And I mean, that was not what Best Buy was like before you, you took over. And, you know, the, you know, and people are, are used to new managers coming in with their new ideas and yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's all just something going on up there. And, um, yeah, you know, did they not go, Yeah, you know, this too will pass, you <laughs> uh, right. un- so, know, until they bought it? I mean, what, yeah. how long did it take for the change so it,
1: to happen? It, it, it was a journey. And so if we go back to the turnaround, so the time when we were going to die, you know, the, with hindsight, the team told me, oh, Hubert, you were so clear about the fact that we needed to change because you told us if we don't change, we die. So we said, okay, we're going to change. Now, um, how did the change happen at the beginning? Start with people. So, first thing I did when it, my first week on the job Rudy, was to spend working in a store so that I could listen to the frontliners, yeah. see what was going on, and so made notes of everything they were telling me that I was seeing, and then we acted on it. So, first thing was, yeah, we're going to listen to the frontliners who know what's going on. Second thing, starting with people. Is you have to change to start at the top, right? Because I'm, I'm a bit of a Maoist, fish rot from the head. And so, in a turnaround, my approach to change management is to change management. And so, pretty quickly, we changed some of the key uh, senior leaders at the, uh, at, at the company. Then you need to have a clear philosophy. So, in a turnaround, everybody would say cut, 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 right? Close doors, uh, cut headcounts as if people were the problem. No, no, people are the solution, they're the source. So we said, in our turnaround, our first priority is gonna be to grow the top line to the extent that we need to cut costs, which we needed to. We're gonna focus on non-salary expenses, which is all of the elements of the cost structures that have nothing to do with people, optimize benefits in the US companies pay for healthcare. So if your employee population is healthy, guess what? You know, healthcare costs go down. And you go after a headcount only as a last resort and even there you're going to try to redeploy the people that uh, whose position uh, eliminated and then to your point i love what you said right it's all about creating energy how do you create energy co-create the plan it's not about coming up with the best plan it's coming up with a plan that you know people will rally around uh, and then it's uh, create the energy because you're going to get the, the, the bicycle going, you know you cannot direct a bicycle at standstill, it falls, so you need to get moving. Then you celebrate the victories, you talk about the problems, and you work together to solve them. And so this big idea that you I, mean, I think you and I are brothers, maybe from a different mother, but uh, <laughs> the same idea. Energy is not a finite quantity. You can create uh, energy, right? And, and so, My approach to change management is to change management. And the other thing, (laughs) the way you change behaviors is by changing behavior. So, you know, if as executives, you you spend your time on your front line, you are, you know, you're putting people in position of leadership who have a heart and, and a head and a soul, have all of the right body parts. You spend time on the customers, you spend time, you know, helping people solve problems. You empower people, you know, people, uh, you know the power you have by, through your behaviors is really critical. Now, of course, what feeds the whole system is results. You, know, you need to produce results along the way because talk is cheap, right? So one of the key areas of focus was our say-do ratio, the ratio between what we said we were gonna do and what we actually did. That builds credibility, not only with the employees, but also the shareholders, the boards, you know, and a lot of our, of our stakeholders. So that's some elements of our journey. You know, m- many more details in in the, in the book. Sure. Of course, but well, I think you, you get a flavor of what it was
0: like. at least my philosophy. Um, I mean, I, I think one of the things that, that has struck me most is, and, and and we we mentioned Bob Chapman just before before we when we started speaking here. Um, you know, he's a an, an owner of a business and yeah. has followed very similar principles with extraordinary effect too. Um, Fabulous, and then, uh, Fabulous. Yeah, and there's Tony C at the Zappos and Chris Rufer yeah. at Morningstar, but they all are either founders or owners of businesses. And then, and then we also look at the likes of um, I, I don't know Gary Hamill in his book Humanocracy. You know, he's yeah. thought it through. He's seen and and and, and uh, uh, John Pfeffer as well. You know, uh, all, all these. Um, but, but you, you were an employee, so you, you have to, uh, so you, you don't have those deep roots into, into the business. You've come in from outside. It, it seems to me that it takes extraordinary courage and bravery to do what you did. How, how much self-doubt did you have? Because I think also part of what you, what you, you are offering and you're sharing and your and, and um, you know, people see is that vulnerability, that, that humanness. Um, and so it's not as if you were that sort of bold, you know, leader from the front the, 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 this is the plan and everyone must follow me. Yeah. Um, and yet, you, you had to be very strong to, to push this through, I, I would suspect.
1: Yeah, I think that, you know, you're touching on something that uh, I, I feel is really, really important, which is uh, what's the leadership model? right, for this century. Clearly, whatever we we're doing last century is not really working well. <laughs> so the, the model of the, of the leader is the superhero who is there to save the day, who is quite autocratic, who is driven by power, fame, glory, or money. Eh, you know, we don't want that. I think that the model today is that of a, what I call the purposeful leader. And it starts with being clear about why are you here? What is your purpose in life? and being curious about as we said right about the purpose of people around you and r- rallying around this idea of creating some com- some good in the uh, in in the world it does continue with uh, this idea of vulnerability which is the opposite of what we were taught you know I remember when I was growing up one day one of my parents' friends was visiting and uh, I don't know, I was asked a question. I said, well, I don't know the answer to that question. I said, young man, you should never say this. I said, well, no, that's the truth. I didn't know. <laughs> so my, you know, and, and being verbal, that means one of my favorite phrases now is my name is Hubert and I need help. And so when I studied at Best Buy, I mean, I, I had credibility, not from my knowledge of retail because I had zero knowledge, but I had done quite a few turnarounds, but I didn't know everything. And so three months into... After I joined, I told my team, look, uh, this turnaround is going to be hard, right? Let's agree. (laughs) That means that all of us need to be the best leaders we can be. That starts with me. So I have a coach. He's going to come in, and he's going to ask you for feedback about what I'm doing and how I'm doing things. And so I would appreciate it if you would be willing to spend time with him. You know, he gathered everything. I thanked my team. I gathered them. Thank you for all of the wonderful feedback you've offered on the basis of that feedback, um, I've decided to uh, work on three things. Number one, number two, number three. Uh, and I'm going to follow up with each of you to ask for advice on how I can get better on these three things. And don't get me wrong. I was not failing at the time. Things were going great. But I wanted to make sure that I got feedback from them. And also at the same time, signal that it was okay for every one of us you know, to want to get better. In yeah. uh, this idea of being okay with saying i need help uh and uh, really orchestrate is, is 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 fundamental and it's then it leads to this key notion that we've talked about right my key role as a leader is not to be the smartest person in the room although it's tempting oh my god you know adding too much value but it's really to create that, that
0: environment where others can be successful I, I think that's that's really critical isn't it that to understand that that exposure of vulnerability of humanness doesn't in fact weaken you it in fact makes you stronger it, yeah. it in fact builds people's faith in you it, it allows people to give you information yeah. uh, rather than thinking he doesn't need any information because he knows all the answers yeah. um, and I think it also I mean just the way you were speaking about it it it, it, it creates that foundation of purpose that you that you have you you know uh, and and you need that strong platform to work from um so uh, so so the question is i suppose how how do you spread the word how do we get other people to to take this on because i still think the environment that the the standard environment people go into in in work situations is not like that so how how do we encourage people to change?
1: Yeah, that, that's that's the, now that I've uh, passed the baton uh, of CEO and then chairman at Best Buy and I've started the new chapter, that's uh, that's really what I'm focused on. The, the, the premise is that, uh, again, the world, we need to change, right? Because what's the definition of madness, right? Doing the same thing and hoping for a different outcome. The world we live in is not working. So you have to start with this. Uh, you know, then it goes into so change to what? I think that uh, the, The reason why I've written this book is I wanted to lay out what I've learned over the last 30 years and really provide a, so what I believe we need is a refoundation of business and capitalism around purpose and human connections. And we to provide an architecture for these principles, right? So that we can move forward. I'm not the only one to talk about it, but I, I, because of the (laughs) surprising success of Best Buy, the share price went from $11 to now, I think between 110 and 120. Wow. That gives me some credibility. It does, indeed. <laughs> uh, and, and so the, the, my way to contribute was to write this book, lay out the principles, and really write it as a guide for people who are keen to move in that uh, in that direction. The other ways that you know I'm active in that area is uh, I like to go into companies and you know uh, so. One-on-one, you know, coaching and, and and mentoring of CEOs and senior executives. We can do town halls, you know, or, or fireside chat with the CEO and the, the leadership team. Um, I think that's a uh, that's a conversation. At Harvard, uh, where I'm now a member of the faculty. I'm working on developing a course, both for executive education and in the MBA program, because I believe that too much of business education is focused on learning techniques and not on how to put everything together to lead in this uh, 21st, um, uh, 21st century. And so I'm gonna spend a lot of time uh, on that uh, as well. What I think is gonna help as well, Roddy, is that uh, I think employees are demanding it, customers yeah. are demanding it, shareholders. You know, whether it's BlackRock or State Street or, you know, Vanguards. I know a lot of these players, of course, through my time as a public company CEO and many of them are friends. They know that if the planet is on fire, that's a big business risk. They, and Best Buy headquartered in Minneapolis. We know in Minneapolis, if the city is on fire, you cannot open the stores. And so, you know, as leaders, we need to fix these things uh, and, and so it's part of our responsibility. The role of CEO, it's very interesting how the, the mission has changed. It's not simply about creating shareholder value. The scope has changed and you need to deal with all stakeholders in a harmonious fashion and the leadership model has changed, right? And so I think there's external pressure for all of us as leaders to change and then help you know, can be provided uh, through coaching, mentoring, uh, executive education, uh, and, and whatnot, and in celebrating successes. There's many more, I believe, there's many more great leaders who are on this journey and who are progressing. And I think we, it's, it's fascinating, I think we're at the beginning of a new era and we get to create a world that does not exist yet, but with many great approaches. So I think we should celebrate all of the great leaders who are moving sure. in that direction, learn from the challenges, you know, you've pushed on, what are the challenges? How do you overcome them? And, and then create this future that does not exist yet, but that can be more sustainable. I and mean,
0: do you, do you think, uh, how, or how much do you think, that the finance world, the investment world, the investment community have a role to play enabling this? I mean, that focus on quarterly reporting and, uh, and quick fire returns. Yeah, so any
1: CEO who says that the reason they're not able to do these things is because of the pressure on quality, uh, on, on quarterly earnings. Come on, you know, that's a terrible excuse. Uh, you know, <laughs> come on, you know, to, to, do you love leaders because they have the best possible excuses? No. Mm-hmm. So I think we live in a world where I do say that we treat profits as an outcome and not the goal. But by the way, shareholders are a very important group of stakeholders because yeah. they take care of, our, of the retirement of our parents of ourselves. So you know, it, they play a very important role. So our role is to uh, work with all of the stakeholders simultaneously to create great outcomes for them. Now, where shareholders are actually very helpful in many, many different ways, I've loved every interaction with our shareholders. One is when Larry Fink started to write to all of us, public company CEOs, yeah. uh, emphasizing the importance of purpose, long-term strategy, you know, uh, s- social, environmental matters. And the first time that Larry wrote to us, I was so happy with this letter that i hand delivered my shareholder letter to him in his office in midtown manhattan i said larry <laughs> thank you for this is my response but thank you for writing because you're providing the air cover for boards sure. and, and companies and then of course it was followed by the brt statement on on corporate uh, business uh, corporate. Right, so shareholders yeah. you know in uh, almost every one-on-one meetings now with shareholders so-called ESG matters or, you know, environmental social governance matters are on the agenda. So they're really making a difference. That doesn't mean that they don't care about financial return, of course they do. And of course we should. And one of the ways that I've really enjoyed our interaction with shareholders, they always love their questions. And so you're doing this, how is that gonna work? I, I thought their challenge was very helpful. You have to see them as customers I never saw them at the enemy. Sometimes people like zero-sum games. so if we do the right thing, we're not going to be profitable. That's crazy. you know that doesn't make sense. We have to embrace the power of ants as opposed to the tyranny. But, but of. but you, you, you were on an
0: upward trajectory so that oh
1: no oh uh, Roddy <laughs> <laughs> in 2012 there was zero by recommendation on the stock right. And when we introduced our Renew Blue plan in November 2012, we focused on the five stakeholder groups. And I was very clear with them. Now, admittedly, when they heard my presentation, it was a big yawn because shareholders, you know, they're very smart. So words are cheap. They wanted to see progress. And we kept them on the journey. We explained to them what what we were doing, why we were doing it. So the one of the chapters in the book is is about how to turn around a business without everybody so it. It. Yeah. because the the principles you and i are talking about also apply when the going is tough when things are really difficult this idea of you know purpose and putting people first we didn't spend a lot of time talking about the abstract purpose we but we we started with people and doing the right thing for customers fixing what was broken in really treating profit as an outcome. We we've always tried to refrain from making any decision for the sole purpose of hitting earnings that quarter that would endanger the, you know, the, the astral program. progress. So, and you have to be disciplined around this. But if you, my experience, Roddy, if you are, uh, if you build your credibility and if you're transparent with your shareholders and say, this is what we're doing, this is why we're doing this, we see the potential. We see, and we'll keep you on the journey. They're looking for great investable, you know, stories. So it's your duty to create that story and then deliver it. But the the, the idea that shareholders are the problem, I think, is uh,
0: is very far fetched. So us. it comes to that, you know, that that great leadership. Yeah, intangible of trust, doesn't it? And we're yeah. always told that leaders need to build trust. But trust is the outcome of lots of other actions. It's yes. not something you can go out and, and do. You can't do trust. Trust, um, yeah, trust me. I'll see you in five years. And there yeah, it doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> That's not gonna get you very far. Sure. Um but um but by doing, but it's that say do um yes. equation again, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, fascinating, fascinating. Well, it's really exciting. I mean, I, I, I mean, I, I take it from your demeanour, you're, you're quite hopeful about, um, about how things will change.
1: Well, I think it's, a, it's a matter of, uh, yes, of course, staying with it. But I think there's, there's a greater, greater, an increasing realization that we have a burning platform. I mean, you would need to be blind, <laughs> you know, to not see that there's a burning platform. I think the level of conviction. So there's understanding. There's conviction. Uh, when I talk to my peers, you know, leading uh, large companies, they they know uh, there's a great, you know, growing desire, um, and we have to stay with it. So, you know, as an example, I think following the murder of George Floyd, the issue of you know systemic racism and and how important it is for business to address it has really rose, and, uh, rose to the risen to the top. Um, And now I'm impressed by how many business leaders understand both in their head, but also in their hearts and their guts that we need to change. We need to work on endings. And so uh, people are setting goals, public goals. Boards are uh, holding management accountable. In the business world, do we know how to solve business problems? And for me, ending systemic racism is a business problem. Of course we do. But then we have to stay with it and keep working it and I believe that if we stay with it, this generation has the ability to, if not solve systemic racism, make it really much smaller so that it's much less of an issue. Uh, but as everything
0: in life we has to stay with it. Um, I, I, and it is really interesting that you know, that, that ecosystem, the, the way that everything is, is interconnected. Uh, and if you if you start making things better in one place, that can, you know, the virtuous circle can, can work. I, this is such an important point. So uh,
1: uh, I'm speaking from New York City. So uh, a, f- a few years ago, <laughs> uh, there was a declaration of independence. I think today, what we need is a declaration of interdependence Indeed. and truly believe that uh, business can be a force for good, that you can do well by doing good, but it takes everyone working together. And the idea that you can win at the expense of others, I mean, it's so terrible. And so I'm a big believer in win-win-win partnerships. Let's create this future together that does not exist yet, but that is going to be more sustainable. And and we'll need a lot of uh, human magic and human genius and and ingenuity to solve our problems. But uh, I think if we unleash that magic, great things can happen.
0: Certainly beats the alternatives. <laughs> well, we're, we're, we've eaten up loads of time. Unfortunately, we're, we're out of time. But I, I think that's a, really, that's a really positive, upbeat note um, th- to end on. So, Uber, thank you very much. I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed speaking with you. And um, I, I think what you say has so much importance for, for ha- how we go into the future. So, uh, Uber Jolly, thank you very much indeed. Roddy, thank you, everyone. Good luck on your journey. Thank you.